14 of our story. And this comes from Mark 11 and John 2, and Jim and I are going to read this together. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if they had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say that. And on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both the sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sowed doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is not written, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Hey guys, do me a favor, open up to Mark 11, would you? This story that, uh, that, that Mark and, and Jim just read here a moment ago, um, you know, Jesus going into the temple and like just going to town, flipping tables and driving people out with whips and, and stuff like that. Um, honestly, it's always been one of my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> growing up, Jesus had often kind of fixed himself in, in my mind is like a 98-pound Ned Flanders. And I'm sorry, as a guy, it's just hard to get behind that, right? And, and this was always one of those stories where, you know, you're seeing strength and assertiveness and, you know, and just kind of, you know what I mean? I've always liked this story, but, but I do know a lot of other people who, who haven't. And I think it comes down to the fact that in it, Jesus is just mad. And, and so it gives this idea about a God who is angry, and guys, I'm here to tell you today that's not really what this story is about. Was Jesus mad? Maybe. But that's not what the story is about. It's about something deeper than that. It's about judgment. But it's even about something deeper than that. The story is really about warning. And we're going to take a close look at it today because what it does is it really reveals something that I think is, is deep and personal to, to what God is like, to who God is like, and something deep and personal about the heart of God. Now, the story, as you heard it read, this temple flipping stuff, it actually comes up in two places. It comes up in Mark 11, where you turn to, but you'll also find it in John 2. And there's actually some question out there about whether Jesus went into the temple and did this once or if he actually did it twice. It's not entirely uncommon for the gospel writers to take the same like event in Jesus' life and kind of rearrange the storyline around to, to use it for their own theological purposes. So it could be that, but there is enough difference in the two storylines that Jesus may have actually done this in the temple, not once, but two times around. Guys, you ever have someone offend you? 
do something to you that just like made you mad. All right? Have you found, though, that if someone does it once, you can kind of bring yourself to a place where you get on with it, right? What happens if the same person does it to you again? That's what we got going on right here. And so we're going to track with Mark today. And the way that the story works with Mark is, is it starts right after Palm Sunday, all right? Jesus is in the temple. He's coming into Jerusalem, and it's right after Palm Sunday. But before we get to that, central to Jesus' ministry is this idea of something called the kingdom of God. I mean, you can argue that what the Gospels are really all about is that in Jesus coming to earth, God brought his kingdom to earth. Now, in the Old Testament, they have a word for this. They call it uh, the day or the day of the Lord. And the prophets would look forward to this, this time that was going to come when God was going to come and fulfill and, and bring to pass like all these promises and all these cool things that he had been talking about. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you a list. And it's not like the end-all, be-all list. But if you were to take all these kind of promises about what that day of the Lord would be like or what Jesus' kingdom is all about, you could summarize them like this. Now just go through and read the list. Okay, a few questions. Take a look at that. As you're looking at this list, does it seem to be more heavily weighted towards things of like grace and mercy and good news, yeah, this is awesome kind of stuff? Or does it seem to be more heavily weighted towards like, you know, judgment and striking you down and, and, and bad news kind of stuff? Which way? Grace and mercy, do you agree with them? Yeah, it feels heavier there. You see both, right? But it feels to be more heavily weighted towards the one side. Now, if, if Jesus' kingdom or what the point of the Gospels is all about is that these prophetic hopes started coming to pass in Jesus, think about his ministry, all right? As he's going around doing his ministry, do you see Jesus doing more of the good news stuff on the list or more of the bad news stuff on the list? What do you think? Probably more of the good news, right? I mean, you see him welcoming Gentiles in far more, for example, than you see him, well, smashing tables and temples, right? Now, final question. If these are prophetic hopes, this has been revealed things by God about what's going to happen, are some of these going to happen or are all of these going to happen? All of them, right? If God's word is true, then all of these things that God said are going to manifest in his kingdom are inevitably going to come to pass. Are you with me? Now, there's something very inherent in this list to the nature of who God is and the quality of what he is like, but also what Jesus is doing in the temple. We'll come back to this later. So the story goes like this. Jesus is coming in and it's Palm Sunday, right? Now, this is like screaming mobs of people and not to tear them apart, screaming mobs of people ripping off their clothes and going, Jesus, you're the best and Jesus will follow you everywhere. I mean, it's nuts. Guys, Palm Sunday is not a Christian holiday. Did you know that? What's going on here is, is it is the pinnacle 
day where Jews from all over creation were commanded by Old Testament law to come into the city of Jerusalem and they come in to celebrate. And they're coming to celebrate because the fundamental thing that defines them is there is a God of freedom. There is a God who sees people in suffering and comes down to free them. The Exodus is all about and so they would gather from all over creation and they would start piling and they would say that, that the city of Jerusalem it would, it would grow from like a, a population of 50,000 people, give or take, to anywhere from 500,000 to 2 million people. Wrap your mind around this. For one week, a city exploding with 10 to 20 times its normal population of people coming from all over creation to celebrate as hard as they possibly can a God who redeems. I drove into McHenry today. Population sign, at least where I was coming in, said 27,000 people. What would McHenry look like if for one week there were 270 to 500,000 people in this town coming like it's New Orleans right before Lent? Right? You think you have to wait for a long time at the restaurant now. You start to get an idea of what it's like. And Jesus is walking into this. And the people are going nuts. Here comes David's heir. Here he comes into David's city. Here he comes to set up, the, to set up his kingdom. They start shouting things like, Hosanna, and God save us, and you're the best. It's kind of like my kids and I, we were watching something this week. You ever see that old footage of like Beatles concerts? You know, the old actual black and white footage, think of that, or, or like Elvis or something like that. And you have got like throngs of 18-year-old girls who are weeping and crying and fainting and trampling each other because, oh my gosh, he's here and I would do. You got this picture in your mind? Okay, Jesus pioneered this movement, all right? And they are going nuts. Now, he comes in and he sees something. It's a fig tree. Here it is. He sees this fig tree, and it's not in season. You don't pick corn in April, right? You don't go apple picking in February, right? Likewise, you don't pick figs after Palm Sunday. It's just not how the world works. And Jesus comes up, and he sees this tree, and he says something. And look at it in Mark 11. I want you to track this. It's like around verse 15 or change either way. What does he say? Shout it out. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. He curses the sucker. He just strikes the thing. It's like poor fig tree, you know? He strikes the sucker down. Now here's the question. Is Jesus just ticked? Is he just mad because... You know, you're hungry after getting mobbed by like thousands of 18-year-old girls, right? Or is something else going on? Have you ever had something not work right? Yeah? You ever have a computer not do what it's supposed to do? Have you ever had your car not do what it's supposed to do? Have you ever tried to assemble something? And they give you those directions and you swear they're in every language except English. And 
you know how it's supposed to go together, but, but going from, it just doesn't work. Have, have you ever had kids who leave their candy wrappers on the floor for like the 20th time that day? Right? Is, is it true? There is nothing more aggravating in this universe than when something doesn't work right. Yeah? All right, show of hands on this. How ma- You don't even know what I'm asking you yet. <laughs> yes, I know you have hands. Thank you very much. Show of hands to what I am going to ask you now, all right? Have you ever cursed something, kicked something, swore at something, yelled at something, trashed something, junked something, or otherwise thought very unpleasant thoughts about something that didn't work right in your life? All right. All right. Israel was not working right. Israel was not working right. See, Israel is the fig tree. It's actually a symbol for Israel throughout uh, the Old Testament. And Israel was not doing what it was supposed to do. See, when God picked Israel and selected them of all the people groups of this world. He didn't just pick them because they were like a teacher's pet favorite. He picked them because he had a very specific job for them in mind. They were to be his agents. God was going to show them so much about himself that other people just didn't have access to. And Israel's purpose was to take that and show it to the nations, to show it to the Gentiles, show it to all the other people, because God loves people. Israel was blessed for the purpose that they could be a blessing to others. Make sense? But Israel wasn't working right. Because like a lot of people, when they're blessed, they they just kind of turned it on its head. God blessed me for me. Period. And instead of seeing their role as being a blessing to others, instead of understanding that that God didn't just love them, but that God also loves others, they took their choosing, their calling, their election, or whatever you want to call it, and they made it something exclusive just for them. Now, I want you to read something with me. We've been doing this challenge here at FOF where we've been all fall trying to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, all right? Keep your finger at Mark 11, but I want you to go to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, believe me, I know that all of you have this memorized like for weeks, but for like the two of you here who don't yet, I just don't want it to be embarrassing. So just read this along with me, all right? It's it's Matthew 7, and it's kind of like, we're just going to read this chunk. It's going to start at verse 16. And it's going to run through verse 21. And, you know, it hit me. Um, if you're using a chair Bible, you're using NIV. I've got an updated version of it. So there might come points where our, like, reading just, like, diverges in the woods. Just remember, you have got the, the real inspired word of God in your hands. So just, just roll with it and let me be wrong, okay? Read together with me. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Israel is the fig tree, and Israel stopped bearing fruit. They forgot what they were about and actually became more about what they were never supposed to be about. And guys, the call to Israel is God's call on you too. Check this out. From Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes, we are God's worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, five bucks says there's a lot of you in this room that have the two verses before this memorized. You've heard this one, you are saved by grace through faith. This not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Yeehaw, rock on, put a period, get on with your life, right? As though God saved me just for me. As though God's entire purpose of dying is that just like, yeah, it's all about me. It's just for me. Where Paul has this idea that just like Israel, God has a purpose for you too. Would you agree that God loves more people than Israel? Yeah, you think he loves Greeks? People from Egypt? Syria? Right? Right? Africa? Yeah, Indonesia? All right? Like, no one over here is like, oh, I don't know, man. You know, it's, what do you guys think? Europe? All parts of Europe or just Southern Europe? All parts, probably, right? Like, even Lithuania? Yeah, what about, like, Liechtenstein? I mean, no one remembers these guys. These love them? Yeah, Canada? I know, I know, I'm with you on the Canada thing. Yeah. U.S., all right, even people with southern accents. God loves people more than just Israel, right? Christians, do you realize that God loves more people than just Christians too? And that as Christians, we've got a job to do. There's a way that we're supposed to work, There's something embedded in the fiber of us here at FOF. It comes out of our membership covenant. It's something very central to what I believe and think church should be about and something that we we really try to make central to FOF. Here it is. It says this. We don't see outreach as one component of the church. We see it as every component. We believe the church is God's agent of bringing his restoration to a broken world. His call is not for us alone, and FOF exists for something bigger than itself. Membership means pouring ourselves into this. The day that any church exists only for itself is the day that God should close that church's doors. The day that FOF exists only for itself is the day that I pray God closes these doors. And believers, the day that you think that you exist only for yourself, well, this is the lesson of the fig tree in Israel. They forgot they were called to be a blessing and came to see it being all about me. And the question of the fig tree is this, guys. Are you? Are you? 
when something doesn't work quite right, we get frustrated, don't we? And if we spend a lot of money on something and it doesn't work right, isn't it even more frustrating? How much more when you give your life for something and when you die for something and it doesn't work right? And this enacted parable of Jesus with the fig tree is simply the question, are you? Now, he curses it. And if you're following along in Mark uh, 11, I want to invite you to go back there. You can see around verse 15, it says, and on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and it all starts breaking loose, Right? I mean, he starts kicking over tables. He starts flipping money changers. He starts making like a whip of cords and driving people out. I mean, he starts going to town in there. And it says in verse 16 that he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And it says, and as he was doing this, it's like he taught them, you know, don't get in your mind like Jesus. Now let's have a lesson about what I just did. You know, he starts shouting at him. He starts commanding him. He starts filling this, this area with his presence, saying things like, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. I want to show you a picture of this temple that Jesus went into. All right, here it is. Now, I know there's a lot of like little words around it that you might not be able to make out. That's okay. Don't worry about it. I'll walk you through some of this. This is a schematic of what the temple would look like during the time of Jesus. Now, originally, when Solomon built the temple, it consisted just of like this, like, see the city within a city right here? It's kind of like the the structure within the structure. You see that? Yeah? It consisted just of that. Now, Now, the big high thing you're seeing in there is called the Holy of Holies. This is where like the Ark of the Covenant was at. This is where the high priest would go in and like bring the sacrificial blood. And, and right outside its doors, there was this big altar and the priests would be out there sacrificing, 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 offering up the prayers and the pleas and the petitions and the cries for forgiveness of the people of God. But by the time of Herod, you know, King Herod, like the, the baby killer, Right? By the time of Herod and the time of Jesus, the temple had like exploded in size. And you can see there is like this courtyard up there. You got it? And you see there's also like this kind of courtyard right there, right? And if you can make it out, I know it's small. You might be able to see like wording right here and right there that's labeling it. Can anyone make it out? Court of the Gentiles. You know what a Gentile is? Yeah, anyone who's not a Jew. Anyone who's not a Jew. It's the court of the Gentiles. Because here's how it worked. Only the high priest was allowed in that, that holy of holy place. And only a good Jew was allowed into that inner structure. But occasionally, some of the light of Israel did leak out. You know what I mean? Sometimes there were those Gentiles out there who would start to see something. By saying it, they would start to see something about this God that they they claimed and they worshipped and they served. And they would start to go say things like, that's the kind of God that I'm looking for. That's the kind of God that that I want to believe and that's the kind of God that I want to follow. They would start saying things about the way they lived and and what they taught about the the truths and the realities of life and, and this universe. And sometimes they would start to say things going, those are the answers I've been 
looking for. That's what I want too. And so they would start to come and they would hang out on the fringes and they would look in and and they were never really fully part of that people Israel, but they would kind of just like hang there and and try to pick up the crumbs, if you will, that, that, that would be scattered. And by the time of Herod and the time of Jesus, it wasn't just Jews coming to Jerusalem. It was some of these Gentiles too. And it was these two courtyards right here as they would come to worship and celebrate that they would hang out in. It's important for our story because this is where where Jesus is doing the temple flip. This is where Jesus is driving out the money changers. Because think about it. Like, have you ever brought your dog, like, on vacation? Anyone? Does anyone own a dog? Seriously, that's it. Has anyone ever seen a dog? (laughs) Thank you. All right. Have you ever tried to bring like any kind of pet with you anywhere, including your kids? I'd say including your wife, but man, I would pay for that one. Right? Yeah, I'm not looking that way anymore. All right. <laughs> no greater nightmare in this world, is there? Imagine trying to travel to Jerusalem, bringing your goat along that you have to sacrifice. 300 miles on foot, dragging a stupid goat with you. It's a pain in the butt, isn't it? I mean, I've never tried it, but I can imagine. So what they would do at the time of the Passover, when Jesus is there in Jerusalem coming in and flipping this table, is they go, you know what, guys, leave your goat at home. Seriously, do not try to drag your goat here. What a pain. We'll have some goats for you to buy. You can buy them right on site. Just trade it in and do it. You know, and don't go in your mind that they're trying to like cheat people or fleece people. Yeah, I'm sure there was a markup, but there isn't anything in this world, isn't there? It's not really what it was about. See, my entire life, people had kind of cast this story to me as kind of an object lesson of saying, see, that's why like, like churches and money, they just no, it just doesn't mix. And, and don't let those kids have a bake sale because man, if Jesus were to come down, ooh, he'd, you know what I mean? That's not what this is about. In fact, the farthest thing from. In the ancient world, the way we like to segregate things today, politics over here and our religious life over here and economic life over here and personal life over here, they never thought like that. Jesus never thought like that. Because God's holistic. With God, there isn't like five different lives. There's just life. And so they would always, always, always all be blended together. There's something more going on. Have you, uh, have you noticed that um, religious people often tend to be most concerned with like external things? I don't think that's the way it is with God. I want to read you a passage. It comes out of Isaiah. It's one of these these prophets of old who looked forward to this this coming of the kingdom. You follow along if you want, but you don't have to. It's Isaiah 1. This is verse 13 where I'm going to start. This is what it says, all right? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and your Sunday morning gatherings. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. 
Your feasts and your special services and all these Advent things you're about to start doing, I hate them with all my being. They become a burden to me, and I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands to me in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash. Make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widows. Do you get the sense that God is far more concerned with righteousness than religiosity? And something in Israel wasn't working right. Now, Jesus comes in and it says he starts to teach. And he says, my house will be or should be called a house of prayer for all nations. But question, where was all the selling and buying going on? Here or here? Imagine what it would be like being one of those people on the outside who discovered that God cares about more people than just Israel, who comes and you come to pray and you come to worship and you come to be a part of the community and you come to immerse yourself in and you find that the only place that you're allowed to gather is a place that's filled with like just lines and, and business and, and I mean, you, know, you think going to the DMV is bad, you think that's frustrating? Imagine what it's like trying to do this here where, where, where the real worshipers of God are allowed to go on in. It's like Israel ceased to be the thing that it was called to be. Israel started to see their election as something that was exclusive for them and they started to forget the central point that they were called to be a blessing for who? For all nations. You might push back and say, yeah, but didn't Jesus say, like, you know, they become a den of robbers? Isn't this really about them, like, cheating people and stuff like that? You see that word robbers? The, the Greek word underlying that in the New Testament, it's pronounced leistes, all right? Uh, give me leistes. That was beautiful. I'm inspired. Leistes has more of a connotation of, like, a revolutionary, a terrorist, when you think Laystace, what you want to think is Robin Hood, all right? Now think about Robin Hood. We all like Robin Hood, so this is kind of a weird twist, but go with it. Was Robin Hood just about robbing people for robbing people's sake? And was Robin Hood just about robbing people to kind of like give some charity to the poor? No. Robin Hood was all about political subversion. Robin Hood was all about overthrowing the establishment, Robin Hood was all about, I can't fight him by force. Robin Hood was a nationalist. What Jesus is condemning in the temple that day, it's not buying or selling for its own right. It's that Israel ceased to be the Israel that God called it to be. They were more concerned with themselves and their politics and their freedom and their rights than all of the nation's that they were called to reach. And Jesus comes in and he starts going to town. 
And I want to submit to you again that this shows us something about the heart of God. Because Jesus cursing the fig tree and Jesus flipping the temple is not about God getting angry. And it's not really even fundamentally about judgment. What it's about is warning. Let me ask you, why do you warn someone? Why do you warn someone? We've all given warnings to people, right? Ever get pulled over, cop gives you a warning? Do you like it when that happens? Oh, I do. (laughs) I will get pulled over day and night if warnings are what result. What I don't like is what it's warning against. Ticket upon ticket upon ticket. Accident. Cost of damage. Physical pain. Disability. Death. I think you can argue that the reason you give a warning is because you care about someone. Would you agree? The purpose of a warning is to say, watch it. Because if you continue this way, there is something worse by far that is going to come. And what we see in the story of Mark 11 today is a warning by God. So many think, people think that God is just looking out to judge. But when I see the heart of God, I see a God that doesn't want to judge anyone. And this whole episode in the temple is a living illustration of that. I love what, what Paul writes. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Have you ever felt like God's a pushover? I can do what I want. It's not doing anything about it. And Paul's like, do you really think that way? Or is he being patient, not wanting to judge anyone? I love this, what it says in, in, in 2 Peter Read that one for me. Here's what comes right on the heels. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? When you hear all about that kind of tagged on the end of Second Peter, flipping temples and cursing fig trees sounds like nothing, doesn't it? Because it's a warning. It's a warning by a God who loves more people than just Israel. A God who loves more people than just Christians and doesn't want to judge a single human being. Let me go back to that slide in the beginning. There are things that are going to happen as part of God's kingdom. All of these at one time will come to pass. When it comes to the heart of God, mercy trumps justice. And so when Jesus came, he was doing all kinds of good news kinds of things. 
But what the story in the temple is all about and why it's so important is that there is a God who will bring all these things to pass and he wants no one to be his enemy. So if you're not working right, he invites you. Come to me. If you're not working right, he invites you to repent. Turn your life back to him. Say, Lord, you're gracious and compassionate. I know you don't want to judge a single human being. This is a story about, I think, God's grace, God's mercy. God's patience about staving off as long as possible. The judgment that inevitably one day he hopes to never bring. We're going to commune today. And do it because Jesus told us to do it. Good enough in its own right. But we're going to do it too because we don't work right. And Jesus solved that problem for us. He solved the problem by giving his life to wash us clean in God's sight. Brothers, sisters, as we come forward today, if you have made God's grace all about you, and if you have ceased to be a blessing, come and embrace God's forgiveness for you and commit to his way of working again today. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, given for you. And after supper, he took a cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of a new testament shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Come, do this in remembrance of me.